Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey everybody, this is Dana Scott of the Inferno Podcast. I'm here with my co-host Patrick Batillo, aka Mr. Orange, the Sun Super Fan. He's always at the games wearing the greatest in orange gear, <laughs> supporting the team. And we got a lot to discuss today entering game one of the Western Conference semifinals, Suns versus Mavericks on Monday. How you doing, Patrick? Hey, I'm well. How are you? Good. And we had a great series against the Pelicans last week that closed in game six. Great nail biter. Chris Paul going 14 for 14. Let's just start with that because we'll never ever or could we see a performance like that ever again. According to Devin Booker, he said he could never do that. But if anybody else was going to do it, we don't know who it would be besides Chris Paul. Have you seen anything close to that before? You know, that was uh, special. Devin Booker made a comment after of, uh, you know, I think 14 out of 15 looks better or something of that nature just to, to make light of how uh, special that is. And, you know, in the playoffs in particular, when stakes are higher, everyone's playing at a different level of intensity uh, for any player to be able to do that uh, was truly remarkable. And then uh, obviously to be able to be there in person uh, and watch that take place, uh, you know, was, was really awesome. Yeah. I think a couple things struck me about why that happened. One new Orleans, which a lot of people is the city that Chris Paul built. Uh, when he first got drafted there in 2005 out of Wake Forest, he has a special place in his heart for that city. And they were yelling, fuck Chris Paul to, you know, yep. to him, right? Yep. And you, that's got to sting a little bit, or not even sting, but using that as motivation. Then you got Jose Alvarado coming at you all series, trying to be, do those sneak attacks in the backcourt as soon as he gets the ball and trying to get under his skin. And I feel like Jose Alvarado is one of those typical New York ball players who just loves to talk and talk and talk. And being from the, the tri-state area and playing ball in New York City, I know how those guys are. Jose Alvarado totally embodies that, just like a gnat that will not get out of your way. And that's kind of what he did in game two when Alvarado tried to sneak from behind and Chris Paul waved him off like, get the hell out of here, right? You know, it's not going to happen today. And it did happen, you know, in game four when Chris Paul was held to four points and three turnovers and broke his streak of seven games without a turnover in the playoffs, right? And so that pushed him a little bit forward as well, as well as Herb Jones getting under his skin by just his long arms and giving them that different look that Alvarado was a six-foot or it might not even be six foot. He looks smaller on TV, but in a, even in person, he looks more like 5'10". When I saw him in Phoenix a couple of months ago in March when they last played the regular season. Um, and then it just seemed like Paul just used those two things as motivation to be like, okay, they really poked the bear now and I'm really show them who I am. It was almost like the basketball version of just – going out with guns blazing and putting everything to rest. And as people kind of thought that they could 
put uh, Chris Paul out there uh, to dry as Devin Booker was still trying to come back from injury. And Chris Paul was like, I can put a team on my back and we're going to get to the next round. So do you think that Jose Alvarado was one of the biggest reasons why Chris Paul got to 14 out of 14 from the field? I, I don't think so. I think, it, you know, it contributed to it. It's nothing Chris Paul's not used to, uh, to be honest. But what is spectacular is Chris Paul in closeout games in the playoffs in his career. And so uh, one of my buddies and I were reviewing, you know, his numbers and everything about him in closeout games. So we knew coming in, uh, Chris Paul was going to be spectacular. Didn't know he'd be perfect all around, uh, but definitely knew he when when he has those opportunities and why he's such a valuable uh, asset and such a, a great leader on any team is he knows what it takes to win and he knows what he needs to do when that time comes and in closeout situations you know th this being one of those uh, you know he really took over so I wouldn't give Jose Alvarado too much credit he did a very good job I'm not I'm not negating that just in terms of who Chris Paul is and what he does you know, that's just another name you can check on the box. And what I thought was really interesting, too, in the postgame pressers uh, for both teams, Chris Paul went first and he really stumbled in saying Alvarado's name. Yeah. And then in a later press conference with Alvarado, he, uh, you know, gave Chris Paul kind of his compliments, but then said he won't forget my name or he knows my name now, something of that nature, right. when he, he literally didn't even, you know, know how to pronounce it. And he fumbled with it quite a bit. And so I thought that was ironic that... Um, you know, Jose Alvarado felt the need to say he knows who he is when um, I think, you know, he's, he's getting a little bit ahead of himself and needs to be humbled quite a bit. Yeah, that's true. It, it's a, a rookie basically trying to go at the master. Like every Kung Fu flick, you got to go after the master in order to come up in Definitely. the ranks, right? Yeah. I, I watched a lot of Kung Fu flicks when I was a kid, and that's always the narrative towards the end for most of the greatest ones that I've seen is that the, the, the young apprentice or the young buck always has to go up next against the master to really gain credibility in that world. And that's where Jose Alvarado is as a rookie. He had a hard come up being a two-way guy, you know, coming out of being the ACC defensive player of the year at Georgia Tech. And then, you know, he's going – you know, to basically work his way up. He just got his uh, deal uh, for, uh, I believe, 12 million. Um, I'm sorry, not so 12 million. I, I believe it was 6 million. Uh, I can't remember the exact number, but he got that in early April just to get on the playoff roster. And then he's going up against the Hall of Famer. I mean, that's what more better of a narrative can you have as trying to basically become a folk hero uh, from coming from humble beginnings in the NBA to Chris Paul having the stature coming into the league and as named the point God and everything else. And it just seemed like the perfect storyline for that series. And you were there. So what was the atmosphere like in New Orleans at the Smoothie King Center? You know, that the atmosphere was phenomenal. And, and it was all three games that we played there. So the first two and then coming back for game six. And uh, it was great to see that city, you know, rally around their team and a team that's super exciting, very competitive. In my opinion, I know we'll talk about it, I think more competitive than the matchup's going to be, you know, against Dallas. But um, yeah, in, in arena, you, you talked about the chance. 
um, you know, F Chris Paul, that was subtle compared to the following games, uh, including game six, where it was F Jay Crowder. Yeah. Uh, and everything Crowder, that came with that, but yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. It, it was, it was a whole lot of fun for sure. Uh, the city was great. People were great, very passionate about their team, but, um, you know, I, I give it up to their, their fan base. It was, uh, of all the playoff games I went to even last year, uh, their fans were the best, uh, comp- for the away arenas besides um obviously our our hometown sons and so that that was really really awesome to see especially coming out of the first round of the playoffs right and here's the thing too is that that crowd pretty much was the x factor as i wrote in my piece about game six that they are the ones who propelled the pelicans to uh getting past the play-in tournament and that went over the spurs and then you know they had that road win over the clippers to become the eighth seed as they came in as number nine uh, originally. So do you see that New Orleans is a basketball city? Because I was discussing this with my wife as she was at, you know, she used to actually live in New Orleans when they didn't have a basketball team. And originally they did have the New Orleans Jazz before they moved to Utah and they had Pistol Pete Maravich. So there's a little bit of history there, but do you foresee or uh, this being a basketball uh, city in the South compared to other places such as maybe Miami or even, um, you know, Orlando or Charlotte that have been there for a long time? Yeah, I would put it this way. I would say they are, we are a basketball city first, Phoenix. I would say they're a football city first. So their Saints come first, in my opinion. Um, I think they're very passionate and loyal about their sports and so let's be honest, during the regular season, they didn't have high percentages of uh, their fans showing up. They didn't have sellouts, uh, and, but then they show up for the playoffs. Yeah, so they, they, started, they, they started one in 12, so I understand. Yeah, that. oh yeah, so call it whatever you want. The, the bottom line is they show up when the playoffs matter and they don't just show up. They, they come ready to go. They have a great time. The atmosphere outside, it's a party every game, uh, you know, pregame for two, three, four hours prior. Um, so it, it's just great to see, and I have no doubt they're going to continue to show that, uh, getting Zion back and obviously, you know, Willie Green and everything that they have going for them, um, Ingram, and, and McCollum, uh, you know, so it, yeah, it's it's going to continue to be, but I I would not say they're a basketball town before football. Their their Saints are special to them there, but uh, definitely passionate about their sports. Yeah, it seems like some similarity to the Suns, and I asked Chris Paul about this that if he for actually sees the parallel between the Suns and the Pelicans, is that they have a young team in New Orleans. They have a first year coach Willie Green, who actually came from the Suns two years. Uh, past two years, he was under Monty Williams, and they have Brandon Ingram, and they have uh, Herb Jones, like who's similar to Mikael Bridges with his length at six seven, and you know a defensive specialist, and he can hit the three, and you know he's, and also you have McCollum, who is a veteran player and guard, and and he's similar to Chris Paul in that way, which CP three came over last year and pushed the sun's over the top towards the finals. So do you see any similarity there? You know, I, I do uh, from the aspect of pretty much what you hit on. And that's where in this series, um, you know, obviously without book and then book coming back, I was still confident in the Suns 
because of that exact piece. And and look at the third quarters in all of these these games in this series, minus what we saw in game six. Um, you know, they outscored us by an average of 12 going into game five. Uh, game five, they still outscored us, but not by that margin. And then game six, we finally had it, which we needed. Without that, we were down 10 at the half. And so if, if we had performed the way we did in all the other third quarters, uh, you know, that, that game would have been a wrap and we'd be headed to game seven. So at the end of the day, I think that experience that everyone talks about and some people, you know, say is overhype truly matters. And, and you got to see that out of the Suns um, in, in the stretch with the uh, run that we had to go into game six in the first round. Right. Did you see Master P or any of the cash money millionaires, billionaires at the game? Oh, yeah. Oh, everybody. Everybody that was there. <laughs> yeah. It was great. I even got to meet Commissioner Silver um, in this last game. He came, he came up and said hello, shook my hand. Oh, he um, did. Exchange a few words. Yeah, he was at game six. So um, pregame, he, he just came right up to me. So uh, that was that was a, an awesome experience. But uh, yeah, yeah, it was a it was a great atmosphere each game. Yeah, right, right. And what about the next series between the Mavs and the Suns and how this is going to shape up? This is a little bit different. They don't have yeah. the bigs that the Pelicans have, like Valanciunas and uh, Larry Nance Jr. Um, or even Jackson Hayes. They have basically two bigs in Dwight Powell, who's the starting center, uh, maybe Boban Marjanovic, if he's seven foot five, and he hasn't been getting many minutes. Um and, and so he's, he's not very mobile. And uh, I know that uh, Finney Smith might be uh, – he, he's actually rising as a three-point threat and as uh, a scorer. And I read some stat today that Elias Schwartzberger says he's the only player to continually rise in scoring and three-point percentage every single year in a five-year stretch. Um, and he's the only player to do that in NBA history. I think Giannis was – the other guy who did it within four years and he was the first to do it since Rod Strickland. So do you see that the Mavericks are going to have a lot of small ball and Aiton is going to take advantage of that? Yeah. You know, this matchup is very interesting to me. So first they're way better uh, of a team than we have seen prior. Uh, you know, Brunson is playing at a, an, an elite level, uh, very similar to what we saw to Golden State when, you know, Curry went out, uh, you know, someone being able to step up, get those minutes and opportunities that they normally wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think they're going to be more competitive than many think and make it seem like within this series. Um, I do believe we have uh, advantages, one of those being DA. Um, people call that a disadvantage too, because he obviously have to guard, um, you know, smaller uh, players and, and guards off, off of the dribble and, and they'll try to stretch him out, which he, one, enjoys the challenge and two, um, has had experience with. But what that will allow is he had a phenomenal series in the first round. Uh, now I think he's going to really have a breakout series and they'll make adjustments, obviously, but all that will mean is you're going to have to uh, either get super physical and, and then we battle that way or you're going to send doubles, which DA's a great passer. And so... I really think this is a great opportunity. And when you look at all the matchups, especially the, the Western Conference, I think we have the best 
opportunity second round with the least challenge you look at today's and I know we'll talk about it and and how game one already was a thriller um, you know in in that series and so I think this is one of those don't overlook at all we have a job to do but if we go and execute you know this should be over in four or five um, and allow you know the rest for whoever is waiting on the other side uh, coming out of this series. Yeah what I like about this is that Devin's back and that Monty said that they're not going to change their style of play for Devin to really uh, focus on him coming off the injury and balancing out the half-court sets versus the up-tempo pace that they want to push. Uh, Devin was cleared after the game six. He felt fine. And I'm wondering if we're going to see more of the Suns' more electrifying play in the open court, just a lot of fast breaks and Bridges just breaking out and Devin going to be on the fly catching lobs and Cam Johnson catching lobs. I really want to see that if they're going to combat the small ball in that way, basically a track and field contest. Uh, and Powell, too, he loves to play above the rim, and he's a leaper. And Aiden playing more above the rim to compete with him in that way. So I feel like this is going to be one of those types of series where it's going to be a lot more focus on the small ball, but also above the rim to just, you know, Philly style of ball. That's what I like about this matchup coming into the semifinals. Um, what, do you feel like this could be some sort of more above the rim than it was because uh, against the Pelicans last series, uh, last round, there was a lot more half-court sets and, you know, having to battle Valanciunas, who's a big space eater, and he had a lot of fleas on his back and he was so dominant on the boards and Aiden had to stay home and battle against that. Uh, what do you see? in that way. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's definitely going to look look more similar to that than the last series against the Pelicans and I think um it's going to be exciting. I think um you know Luka Donich is going to do what he does, but uh seeing the matchup with Bridges and um you know whoever else uh, is is thrown at him, I think is going to um, be a very interesting and intriguing matchup. And I also think uh, the physicality and the attitude that the Suns bring is going to fluster uh, Donich in particular. And, and so it'll be very interesting to see how he responds to that and the officiating and, um, you know, are we able to get in his head, if you will, and, and will that affect, um, you know, the outcome of some of these games. And uh, also we have to mention, obviously, you know, Jason Kidd coming back and specifically Jared Dudley, who's on his staff now. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot in these first two series and matchups of, of Phoenix Suns ties to the previous, um, or, or to the opposition and with the previous uh, NBA players that have uh, originated and played, you know, pretty meaningful minutes and made impact here in the Valley. So I think it's, it's going to add to, uh, you know, the fun that this series is going to bring starting tomorrow night. Yeah. Great talking points about kid and dad, Bob Dudley, man. And cause those guys, <laughs> I'm just making reference to uh, Ennis Cantor's joke. And I'm not the biggest fan of Ennis Cantor <laughs> and what he says in the press, but um uh, I, I do remember Dudley, you know, being in the Suns for a long time, a fixture in Phoenix, just like Jason Kidd was. And they know the Suns. Uh, Dudley knows the Suns very well. Um, maybe not since Monty's been there, because Dudley wasn't around when Monty first came in 2019. He had just left and went to L.A. for the Lakers. But I do see that the Pelic, I mean, I'm sorry, the Mavericks definitely have a lot of gusto in their youth and also with Brunson, he's going to have a lot of uh, great matchups against Chris Paul 
as that point guard versus point guard uh, focus. And Doncic versus Booker, got two stars going up against each other, two superstar scores. Uh, Booker's probably going to be first-team All-NBA, or at least he should. And then you got Doncic, who's probably going to be second-team uh, because of what he's done all year, basically, for the Mavericks to be where they are. So that's the great thing about this matchup is seeing that we have two superstars and, and also a prominent back, two prominent backcourts, small ball, and there's going to be a lot of threes flying because the Mavericks actually average 15 and a half threes made per game. And that's a leading in the playoffs among all teams. So they're going to have to stretch the defense to defend the perimeter and make sure uh, that the Dallas Mavericks don't get hot from behind the yard. Um, our next topic, we're going to discuss the most improved player award winner, John Morant. He played against the Golden State Warriors in game one. They lost by one, 117 uh, to 116. And it was on a last second layup that John Morant missed. It was a lefty layup, similar to the one that he used um, the, on the left to win game five against the uh, Minnesota Timberwolves, who was a seventh seed. That was an exciting finish. So what do you see about, you know, John Morant winning most improved player? I, I'm, I'm real, real uh, kind of iffy about that. Yeah, you know, one, uh, he's one of my favorite players uh, to to watch, and, and there's no question about that and the ability uh, of what he does and what he brings, um, you know, to the game and the NBA all around. Uh, to get most improved, I'm not a fan of that um, award going to him, honestly, based on, you know, what that award is, is meant for. And so um, to call him most improved, I, I don't think, you know, he was phenomenal last year and he's, he's amazing this year, but um, there are other players more deserving in the NBA, in my opinion, for this award. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. And we've talked about this, you know, over the past couple of podcasts with, uh, you know, regards to other awards and and the kind of politics and the way the voting is handled and how that all goes. But I think this is just another example of one where the NBA uh, probably missed it. Yeah, I think the NBA has missed it for sure because I'm like, that's, I, I call that a, you know, you want it here, take it award. <laughs> because John Morant was the number two overall pick and he had a high stock. He was a first team All-American coming out of college, Mary State, three years ago. And he basically turned the franchise around, which was what he expected to do in Memphis. That's why they got him, right? They built the team around him. Exactly. And that's what the guys are expected to do. You don't give most improved player award to a guy who you build a team around. You give it to the guy who was the most unexpected to have a breakout all-star type of season. And the finalists, the, the finalists for the most improved player were DeJounte Murray uh, of the Spurs. And it was John Morant. And the third, let's bring it up here. I should know this offhand, but uh, I, I actually forgot. Let's let's see. Most improved player was you know for finalists were let's see uh, twenty twenty two. Uh, it was um, well Jordan Poole should have got it. He got fourth. Um, and he was, had a great year, but he actually had a great run towards the end uh, of, the, of the season. And then I believe Mikel Bridges should have been up there as well. Um, but let's look at this. 
Um, they okay. So the third person was Darius Garland. Okay, from Cleveland Cavaliers. Now he was really good. He got 11 first place votes. Dejounte Murray got 20 first place votes. Jordan Poole got 15 first place votes. And Desmond Bain got seven first place votes. Now, John Moran did a noble thing of giving Desmond Bain the award after he got it, you know, because Desmond Bain really bulked up his body, became a better three-point shooter, and really was instrumental in getting the Grizzlies to where they are as number two seed in the Western Conference playoffs, right? So I'm thinking that those are the types of guys that really put in the work in the offseason that didn't have a high profile, and then they actually gained the high profile through the regular season. And that's basically what this is. These are regular season awards. So if you got a regular season guy who actually came out and just had a breakthrough season, like the Spurs, DeJounte Murray, um, or Garland, who actually brought them to uh, number four in the East at one point, and then they got to the playing tournament and lost. And then Poole, who is the best scorer on Golden State right now, came through when Steph got hurt towards the end of the season, and he became their best scorer. And when the Warriors had to go young, he pretty much willed them to continue on as Clay was coming back and Draymond Green was battling injuries. And that's their trio for, that got them the three other championships in the last decade. So those are the guys you consider. John Morant, he's pretty much doing what everyone's expected him to do. So if you're meeting expectations, that doesn't really constitute improvement. If you are basically exceeding expectations and they were low to begin with, those are the guys who constitute the most improved. Exactly. Completely agree. Right. So, but what do you see about the Memphis versus, um, the, you know, the Memphis series versus Golden State, now that we're on this segue. Oh, yeah. I, I This is one of the most exciting matchups um, of, of the postseason. And I think each round has had one, right? Last last round, it was supposed to be uh, Brooklyn and Boston, and, and that really didn't turn out to be that. But you could, you could see from, you know, today's matchup, um, the battle, you know, Draymond Green going out with that, uh, what was called a flagrant two, which I don't agree, and I think the league will come back and change that. Right. Um, you know, that that's a huge loss. And for... Memphis to not be able to hold on and finish that off at home um, and give Golden State now the, the home court advantage back. I think that that game might, you know, be already a nail in a coffin, if you will. It's very early. Anything can happen. But it's how is Memphis going to respond? They're not an experienced team with championship pedigree like Golden State. Yeah. So how do you respond from a tough loss like that um, with a young team? It's going to be very interesting to see how they respond. And, and we'll know the answer to that in game two. But, um, you know, you can just see the excitement. I don't think with the foul trouble Golden State was in with Steph Curry, Clay Thompson in particular, you know, I think that that was a game Memphis had to have uh, with all of that factoring in. And then to not pull that off, to me, if I'm Golden State, I'm ecstatic that I was able to, to squeak away with that win there. Absolutely. Uh, you know, quick aside and a caveat about flagrant two. If Draymond Green got that flagrant two, then CJ McCollum should have got a flagrant two on 
you know, for what he did to Cam Johnson in game six in the second quarter. I mean, the way yep. that he, yep. he came at him, he threw his body into him and then threw him down like that. And came that should have been a flagrant two, and they ruled it a flagrant one. But it, it, I just don't understand what the measuring stick is when you go to Steve Javi and Sakakis and he reviews this, and it's a, a, you know a part of the, the referee team in Sakakis, New Jersey, to review these types of flagrant twos. Are they doing it on the same basis when they're trying to figure this stuff out and sending it back to the refs when it goes under the play review? I don't believe well, it is. Yeah, I think it's it's the subjectivity, right? It's it's as Steve Javi said, it's the end decision lies with the the referees at the arena, and so that is just like any other call. It's subjective, so that's a different official from you know the game that we had for Chris Paul, right? That's reviewing it, and so that's where that subjectivity comes in. That mm. I think maybe the league should look at potentially is maybe those are decisions that need to come from the replay center or in some way just to get that consistency because when you have someone in the middle of a game you know not even at halftime uh you know being ejected that that's costly and and again golden state got the win so not something they may be too concerned about but you know overall that's that's a very costly play and i said i would be shocked if um the league doesn't come back and rescind it and so, yeah, it's something that definitely has to be looked at and is game-changing, uh, especially in playoff games. Yeah. And quick aside, uh, another qu quick caveat about Golden State. It seems like their lottery years really were the blessings in disguise because the fact that they had to go young and that they lost all their top guys, so brought some of them back, like you know, Andre Iguodala, and there weren't the super team that they once were, you know, based on building with Thompson, Curry, and Draymond Green. They lost Livingston. You know, they lost um, Sasha. Uh, I mean, Zaja Pachulia. They lost all these other guys like uh, that came off the bench uh, for them. That basically were their supporting cast to get them to their three titles in 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 five years. Uh, they basically were uh, they, they, those two years in 2020 and in last year when they didn't make it to the, you know, the uh, playoffs because they lost in the playing tournament to the Lakers. That's where they had to go young. They got Jordan Poole in 2019. They got Wiseman. Uh, they got Gary Payton in the second. And they got uh, Kaminga. Those are guys that are supporting cast now. We're having to go young. Those Super teams like the Lakers getting a bunch of names, you know, to sell some jerseys. That shows how old super teams don't work. But when you have a great team that was a super team and then you go young, it manifests to where the Warriors are now and why you see guys who, who are the prominent trio of Green, Thompson, and Curry who get hurt. The other guys step up like Poole and Kaminga and Gary Payton the second to really push them to where they are. And that's why we're going to have a great series, you know, to see who could be next if the Suns get past the Mavericks, who we're going to see in the Western Conference Finals, you know, whether it's the young Ja Morant-led Grizzlies or I should say the Jordan Poole-led Golden State Warriors, even though it's still technically Curry's team. And that'll do it for our podcast, Episode 6. Uh, sorry, episode seven. 
thank you for all listening. And also thank you, my man, Patrick, for coming on. Looking forward to be seen at your, at the games and also uh, doing more talks with you while you're in the pod. Absolutely. Take care, be safe, and let's rally the valley. No doubt. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.